Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate it. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Thank you. It's good to see you. Um, welcome to Legacy. If this is your first time or if you're a more recent guest, I think we're officially in June. We have a ton of people out of town right now. Um, usually in the summer times, I find myself more prayerful for people traveling, whether they're flying or they're driving. This year, I find myself a little bit more prayerful for their time of rest. After a really rough year or so, I think it's good to get out and go to the beach and go to the mountains. So as you're praying for your church, as you pray for legacy, keep praying for their safe travel. I mean, the dad in me is always thinking about that. Gosh, I hope they're doing okay. I hope they make it there okay. I hope they'll make it back okay. But also be praying just for them to get some rest. Be praying for people to, to be able to hit the reset and to kind of just drink in life again. Like I said, uh, there has been a lot of just mental struggle, spiritual struggle because of the last year. I hope you get a chance to get out, get in the woods, get out in the mountains, go to the beach if you get a chance. But just as you think about it and as you pray for legacy, please be praying for that. Um, but go ahead and take your Bible. We're going to jump in. We are starting a new series today and I'm going to introduce it to you today. Um, we're going to be in Exodus, the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible or an app, just go to Exodus 1. Just open up your Bible anywhere and turn left and you should end up at Exodus. It's the second book in your Bible. Um, making the Bible clear, if you're new here, making the Bible clear is a, a paramount theme for what we want to do on Sunday mornings. We believe that the Bible can actually preach itself. In fact, it could hold its own weight. So when we go through a book of the Bible, we want to present the passages to you in such a way that God is glorified. And we want this to be the biggest goal for our Sunday mornings. We, we have a lot of goals for Sunday morning. We have musical worship, which will happen a little bit later. We'll take communion together. We want fellowship to happen in this moment. But elevating God's word where we can see and savor God, where we can see Christ clearly, I got to say that is our paramount goal. That is our cheapest of goals on Sunday morning. And we believe that because all of your Bible, all of it is effective to lead you, even Exodus, lead you in godliness, lead you in nurturing the affections you have for God. And one way that we choose to move through the Bible, one way we're convinced and resolved to do this is to just move right through a book from first to finish. That's something that we've done in 15 other books, I believe now. I think this is number 16, I'm not sure. Sometimes we spend a lot of time in a book. If you were here when we went through the book of John, we spent a year in the book of John. Sometimes we truck through it a little bit quicker, right? We are not going to be in Exodus for a year. It is a big book. We're not going to be in it for a super long time. But it's going to be an important book for all of us, right? It's going to help us going through it from front to finish. We believe that it helps us learn how to more accurately handle the Bible, especially in historical texts like this. We could see the whole movement from front to finish of a book. And I think it's going to show us how Jesus is reflected even in an ancient text. Exodus is really, really good for that. In fact, in Luke 24, stay in Exodus if you're there. We'll put this on the screen. Luke 24, we catch this moment where Jesus is walking with two disciples. These disciples don't recognize that it's Jesus. Jesus had already been crucified. He shows up. He speaks with them. And then he says this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, the disciples, 
in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Which means that in that moment, Jesus was saying, hey, and another thing, you remember in Exodus when Moses said this? He was talking about Christ. He was actually showing them how Exodus is one of the greatest opportunities to see echoes and signposts that are going to point to a better redeemer. Exodus, the name of the book, simply means departure. That's all it means, departure. And it's going to be a historical account of how God, a thoughtful God, delivered a rebellious people from a ruthless and cruel villain from Pharaoh in Egypt. And I'm going to say it's much more than a historical account. I think it's incredibly appropriate for today. It's going to be a helpful book for you and me. I know that we've all seen movies, some of them not so great, on the story of Exodus, cartoons. If you grew up in the church, you probably did some kids' ministry crafts around Exodus. And it's fascinating when we're young. It's fascinating when we're new Christians. But as we grow a little older, maybe, and we go through our normal days, our predictable routines, it seems to be, I don't know, maybe not that helpful. We relegate it as just this, this piece of history. True, maybe, but truth with dust on it. Doesn't really help us today. After all, it's about a a crazy old man that's leading a very obstinate people around a country we're never going to go to with crazy stuff happening all around them. What does that have to do with our today? What does it have to do with us today? With racism and community and overwork and rest and abortion and encouragement, how we raise our kids. What does it have to do with anything that we're struggling with today? Why should we care about an ancient book talking about ancient people doing ancient things in a country that, let's be honest, half of us couldn't pick out on a map right now, right? How is that going to help us? There's three big reasons. There's a bunch more. I'm going to give you three. One is that it's going to help you, Exodus, is going to help you see and savor God more. It's going to help you see the texture of God's character more, right? You're going to see the powerful wonders and the majestic might of God. And why that is important is because it's not just something he was like back then. He is the same God today. This is how he is today, right? We're also going to see that he's a truth teller. He's a promise honoring God. That's what he was like then, and that is what he is like today. We're going to see that he was compassionate, and he was thoughtful, and the best part is he is like this today. You see, God's character, much like yours, has texture to it. Right? I mean, none of us are just monolithic in our personality. We all have texture, nuances to who we are and what makes up who we are. When we see God in different moments, like Exodus, we see more texture in God's character. And the more of that we grab our hands on, the more we will appreciate, the more we will see, the more clearly he becomes, the more we savor him. Because God is the same today. He's not thousands of years away from what happened in Exodus. It's as close to him as right now is to us, right? That's how God is outside of time. He is the same God. He is still faithful to his people. He still hears our cries. He's still majestic, still powerful, still compassionate, still keeping his promise to us. He is the same yesterday. He is the same today. He is the same forevermore, as it says in Hebrews. It's not just going to help us see God in general more clearly. It's going to help us see the person of Christ with a very deep accuracy. The things in this book concern him directly. Just as he said in Luke 24, just as we just 
looked at. In fact, there's also this moment where Jesus is on what they're calling the Mount of Transfiguration, talking to Moses and Elijah. Right? They appear, they have a little conference. That's where Peter's a little bit confused. He's kind of aggressive, wants, wants everything to kind of last and stay. And one of the things that it says that they talk about is Jesus' departure. That's one of the topics that they're discussing. That word departure means exodus. That's what it is literally translated into. So I want you to catch that. Jesus is talking to Moses about exodus, but a bigger exodus, a bigger, more important exodus. Because Jesus is going to pass through the waters of death and be brought to life by the Spirit of God in the greatest of exoduses. So when we see this moment, we're going to get to this moment where water is going to stand upright. And yes, Hollywood has done the best they could with that, right? They're walking on dry land. There's all kinds of confused sea creatures on the other side of the, of the water wall. And they're just as confused. And everybody's confused. And everyone's asking the same question you'd be asking if you were there. Like, how far do we get through this thing before the water comes crashing in, right? Like, how are we supposed to do this? What's happening? As crazy as that looks, it's just an echo. It's just a lighter shade of a much deeper exodus that Christ would go through, not when he passes through water, but when he passes through death. And that's what we were meant to see in that. Jesus departs exodus. He departs so that he would be able to carry his people who are enslaved to a better land, to a better place with no enemy that pursues anymore, no slavery to be submitted to anymore. It's going to be an exodus that we start to see some clues about who this person of Jesus would be. Because it's going to be an exodus that we're introduced to the Passover lamb. When Jesus would be the better lamb. Where we see our final priest in Christ. Our final sacrifice in Christ. An unconsumable fire. A rock of provision. Our better tabernacle. Our better manna. Our better rest. Our better Sabbath. All of that. These are not just artifacts. They are the fingerprints of the gospel. All of it occurring 1,500 years before the very first Christmas when Jesus was born. 1,500 years. All of these were meant for us to pick up on. So we're not just going to see God more clearly. We're not just going to see Christ more accurately. We're going to see mission more accurately. Mission, being sent. Right? And it's important for me to say, and you've heard this before, God's church does not have a mission. It's God's mission that actually includes a church. So God has a mission to redeem creation, to redeem the cosmos. The church is a piece of this strategy. And typically, when we think of mission, we think of the Great Commission. That's when mission started, right? It's kind of New Testament-ish whenever we think of mission. But God begins sending people to extend and proclaim truth way before the New Testament. He is multiplying his people long before the Great Commission. We see it in Exodus. It'll be here that we start to see a missional God because he's going to invest an incredible amount of attention to an enslaved people and an oppressed people. And when I say enslaved, I mean in multiple dimensions. Physically enslaved. They are um, sociologically enslaved. They are economically enslaved. Physical, spiritual, all dimensions. We see deep oppression and we see a God who loves the oppressed. God's God's mission, more accurately, is not going to be a project but a people. We see that 
in Exodus as well. And I think we need that as a church. Listen, when I was younger, it's just like you. I thought mission was a thing you did. I thought mission was going to Mexico and painting something, right? It cost you a week of your summer. You raised a couple thousand bucks selling candy bars to your parents and their friends or whatever you did so you could go there, do something, and come back. It was something you did. And it's not too different for people today, right? It's something we do. It's a project. It's time we spend at a, at a nonprofit, boys and girls club. It's a check we write to a church plant or to a missionary. That is missions for us. It's something that is convenient, something that is finite, something that is firewalled from our hearts. We don't really see it as people. We don't see it as a neighbor. And here's the problem. When we start to associate mission with a project instead of a people, it's going to be really easy to insulate the brokenness of others away from our own hearts. It's going to be easy to do that. And when we do that, what we show people is that God is not invested. He's not viscerally invested in people. I didn't go to school to be a pastor. My undergrad was in biochemistry, and so one of the classes I got to take was gross anatomy. Gross anatomy was dissecting humans, okay? So I showed up to this class dissecting humans. I had the struggles you could imagine somebody would have. It's a person, you know. I remember thinking there just going, man, that was somebody's grandpa because he was kind of old. That was somebody's grandpa or somebody's husband, somebody's brother and son. That's like a person. And it was hard for me to make those first cuts. I had to start telling myself in my head, this is not my grandpa, this is not my grandpa, this is not my, it's just tissue, this is just biology, I'm in here for a grade. I had to kind of harden myself, I had to buffer myself from what I was doing right there. And we can do the same thing with missions sometimes, just a project, just something I am doing right now. Listen, if you want to see Jesus better, if you want to grow to enjoy Jesus more, you want to worship differently, if you want to see God more accurately, If you want to be a missionary that enjoys Jesus and bears fruit, Exodus is your story. Exodus is your story. And Exodus, like any good story, has a villain, right? We have Egypt and the Pharaoh that runs Egypt. He's the most powerful people in the world. Not nearly as intimidating now. So we lose just scope of what kind of a place Egypt was. Listen, I'm a competitive person, so I measure everything in Olympic medal count, right? I see the value of a country and what it can produce by how many Olympic medals they can pull together. And I looked, because this is what I get paid the big bucks to do. In the last 100 years, the United States has won almost 3,000 Olympic medals. Almost 3,000. It's pretty impressive. Egypt, 32. In 100 years, it's not impressive. I think legacy in 100 years. I think we could get 32 Olympic medals of some kind, right? Economically, they're not any more impressive today. Out of all the top Forbes 500 companies, the United States has 120 of them based here. Egypt, zero. To put that into perspective, Denmark has one. Denmark (laughs) is more influential when it comes to that than Egypt. Culturally, I'd say the same thing. The United States produces about 800 films, movies a year. Egypt, less than 50. And you've never seen one, which proves that Egypt is not rocking it in Hollywood, right? Now listen, this isn't to throw shade and mock Egypt. I'm sure it's a great place to live. (laughs) If you don't like barbecue and you don't like college football, that's the place to go, right? But some of you are from North Carolina, so you're already used to bad barbecue and bad football, right? (laughs) I just offended a country and a state at the same time, if you caught that. 
But back then, Egypt was a superpower. They weren't like America or China. They were like America and China put together. But even more so, because Pharaoh was worshipped as a god. As a god. Unquestionable. Unparalleled. Huge. And this villain is going to show up kind of where Genesis leaves off, but not quite. When you read the end of Genesis, you get to this passage where 70 of Joseph's relatives come to live in Egypt. Just 70. The Pharaoh has favor on them. Joseph is in the mix. But when you fast forward to the very beginning of Exodus, that 70 has become more than 2 million people. No more Joseph, different Pharaoh, no more favor. And now they're slaves. Slaves. Right. Let's look in Exodus 1. We're going to go to verse 9. Verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. It's going to help us today. We're going to move through this. And he said to his people, and this is the Pharaoh, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Okay. It's a picture of hard work that never stops. The Sabbath hadn't been given as a gift yet. In fact, they didn't even understand what a weekend was. Their calendar wasn't like our calendar, right? I mean, the, the only difference between tomorrow and today for them was nothing. Every day was brick day, right? That's all they knew was hard Work, no PTO, no vacation, none of that. And making bricks was actually the easiest part of their reality because they had taskmasters. They had these people that would make their lives incredibly impossible. And in their groans and in their pain and in their plight, God heard and had compassion. And he raised up a mediator. He raises up a deliverer. And this is what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. This is why she hid him. is because the Egyptians were so scared. They didn't just make slaves out of them. They started to kill them. They started to put them to death. If it was a son that was born, they would kill the sons. Verse 3. When she could hide him no longer... She took, him for a, or she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river and while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. 
So the girl went and called the child's mother. And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The name Moses means to be drawn out, to be drawn out. Interesting here in this passage The word for basket is used in only one other place in your entire Bible. And it was to refer to Noah's Ark. Same word. The Hebrew listeners were supposed to pick up on that. That was supposed to be an obvious detail for them. Because just as God's hand would be on Noah as a deliverer, God's hand would also be on Moses as a deliverer. And then many moons later beyond Christ as a deliverer. Now Moses is going to grow up in the house of royalty. He's a one percenter, right? He lived, he he didn't have a brick day. (laughs) He never worked a hard day in his life probably. Suntan probably, probably covered in essential oils, eyeliner, just like you see in the movies, didn't really do very much, never had a taskmaster before. That was his reality. But he knew he was a Jew. He knew he was a Hebrew, right? I think that was probably common knowledge for everybody because one day he witnessed an assault on a Jew by an Egyptian. And what he did is he took matters into his own hands. He tried to be a deliverer, but without God. That's what we're seeing right here. He tries to be a nation deliverer, but he does it with his own hands, and he ends up murdering this guy, doing a bad job of covering it up just by kicking sand over him. Then he makes a run for it. He runs about 500 miles away to a place called Midian, right? That's the distance between here and Orlando, roundabout, about 500 miles. Midian is modern-day Saudi Arabia, a little worse at the Olympics, if you ask me. But that's where he's at, very foreign land, even for him. And when he gets there to Midian, he fights some shepherds. There were some shepherds that were giving some women a really difficult time, so he fights them. He had a good day, did not kill anyone that day, but as a prize for fighting these guys, he gets to marry one of these women. That's basically what's happening right now. That was the dating app of old, right? Start a bar fight. Save a woman's honor, get to marry the woman. And that's what he did. I'm getting the feeling he's a complex guy. He's one of those guys that you meet at a party, starts to give you a few details, and in your mind you're thinking, wait, I've got so many questions right now. You did what? No, 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 no. Go back, go back, go back. You're moving too fast, right? You've got so many questions. This guy started as a prince that came from a basket in a river, Right? Then he's a prince in royalty. Then he commits murder. Then he's a fugitive. And then he gets in a bar fight. Now he's a married man. And now he's a shepherd. That's a lot going on. Sounds like a Johnny Cash song. He's complicated. He's flawed. He's got failures and regrets. And yet he is perfect for the work of God. A flawed failed, complicated man with a lot of baggage. And he is imperfectly perfect for the work of God. We are too, by the way. It's a different sermon. But I think what's fascinating are the twin rhythms that you're going to see in this book between Moses and Jesus. Just a few of them that I'll mention today. And we're meant to pick up on these. right? We were meant to pick up on these. Moses, like Jesus, is going to escape 
Death as a child, it was ordered from a wicked ruler in order to snuff out God's people. It was Herod for Jesus, it's Pharaoh for Moses. Moses, like Jesus, would spend some time in Egypt. He would sojourn in Egypt before becoming a deliverer. Both of them did that. Moses, like Jesus, would have this season of silent development. We don't have a lot of details in the Bible over Jesus' adult life. Nor do we have that in Moses' life as well, right? Moses, like Jesus, is going to spend some solid time in the wilderness, 40 days for Christ, 40 years for Moses. All of this, by the way, is meant to get and grab the attention of the Jews that were alive when Jesus was walking around. They were meant to see that. They they, they were supposed to connect the dots between one and the other. Because Jesus would be a better Moses, a better redeemer, a better rescuer that would lead a much bigger people from a far worse Pharaoh And I think what's fascinating also, maybe just for me, is the amount of time Moses spent kind of just being insignificant. Not even really being addressed in the Bible, especially in Midian, which was far from where all the action was. You don't hear much about most of his life. James Boyce says it better than I do. He says, Moses was 40 years in Egypt learning something, 40 years in the desert learning to be nothing, and then 40 years in the wilderness proving God to be everything. He was an old man. By the time he shows up and starts barking back and forth with Pharaoh, he's in his 80s. He's an older man. Some maths is hard for me, right? But one thing I do know is for one hour or for every one day he spent leading a nation through the wilderness, he spent two years just being insignificant, being normal, shepherding animals, being just a married guy doing things, I think that's helpful for me to see that, right? For every year he spent leading a nation, he spent two learning skills, two being prepared. Again, it's a different sermon, but I think it helps us approach the monotony of boringly normal years. Some of you are living lives that feel predictable, endless, like you're looping on repeat, that the only difference between your Tuesday and your Monday is nothing, right? And it's probably easy to think, man, my life is meaningless. God can never use my life. There's nothing that I'm going to be able to do with my life. This is my life. And I think it's easy for us to look at this and say, wow. I mean, Christ was in his 30s. Moses was in his 80s. And God used them mightily. I think it's helpful to just think in those terms. And why is it that God's going through all of this trouble anyway? Why? And that's going to be the crux of what we're looking at today. Look in verse 23, 2.23. And like Charlie said before we started, we'll put the passages ahead of time, a week ahead of time, that you can find on Instagram and Facebook. And we're going to figure out a way to get it on the, on the website quicker as well. That way you can read ahead. Next week we'll be in chapters 3 and 4. I'll just tell you that right now. But that way we're not going to read every single verse. We're going to be able to move through this more thematically. But in verse 23, we find God's motive. It says, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That's where we're seeing what's going on as far as a motive in all of this, which is important for us. It says that God heard 
God remembered, God saw, and God knew. Those are the four verbs. But listen, that doesn't mean that there was at one time where God was deaf and blind and forgetful and ignorant. And then I guess one second he wasn't. That's not what he's, that, that's how we use those words. That's not how the ancient mind would use those words. What it simply means is that he decided at that moment, at that time, to act on his promises. That's what it means when it says he remembered. It doesn't mean that he was forgetful. It means that he activated. He pulled the trigger. He saw. He heard. He knew. He was viscerally connected with the needs. He was compassionately tied to his people. And he went ahead and said, now is the time. It was the perfect time. We see something similar in Galatians 4. When Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. When the fullness of time had come, which means time had, had been pregnant for a while. It was ready to go, but at the right moment, it was go. One minute earlier and one minute later wouldn't have made very much difference in our eyes, but it was perfectly designed. It was perfectly executed in God's plan. That's what it means when it says God heard, remembered, saw, and knew. And I think this is where the passage is going to find me most failed. Maybe you as well. Because I don't hear, remember, see, and know the plight of others around me. In fact, a lot of times I don't even care. Don't even care. So many oppressed people, spiritually oppressed, physically, economically, mentally, you name it. You name it. So much groaning around me. But it's easy to tune out the groaning. After all, I'm busy just like you, right? We've got things we want to do. We've got places we want to go. We've got a career we want to build. We've got things we're invested in. It's easy to let some of the, the groaning of our city just turn into white noise, right? We're talking about just simple city awareness here, people awareness, pain awareness, an awareness of what's going on. I think what sums us up perfectly sometimes is how we avoid eye contact with the beggars at the stoplights when we're in our car. We know that they're there, but if we look them in the eye, we know that they will want to come over to our car because they think that we're going to give them some money, so we don't even know that they're there. We, we know they're there, but we don't acknowledge that they're there, right? Or maybe it sums us up perfectly when someone is addicted around us or terrorized by some sort of depression around us. We know that they need Jesus, but they are so difficult so difficult, so we don't activate. We have things to do. Listen, we teach this class once every 18 months or so called Missional Living. And one of the things we've done in this class is we've talked about how to develop the city awareness, right? Questions like, how is your neck of the city broken? I mean, think about where you live. Knoxville's conveniently laid out in boroughs, little, little, little parts of the city, it's just the way that the city is built. So the, the needs, the brokenness in Farragut is probably not going to match the brokenness in the needs as Mechanicsville, right? Seymour is going to look a little bit different maybe than West Knoxville as far as its brokenness. Brokenness is going to take different shapes, different shades, and different forms. But what is it like where you live? Might be a hard question to really answer, right? What is furthest in your neighborhood from what it should be? What looks furthest from glory? If, if the gospel totally swept across your neck of the woods, what would show up to be the biggest difference from where it is today? Right? 
If your neighborhood had a voice, what would it beg the church for? What would it ask us for? This requires hearing, understanding, seeing, knowing, long listening, attentiveness, thoughtfulness, and I'll tell you what else it takes, the heart of God in us. The heart of God. And the heart of God is not something we just give ourselves. For this we need God. He needs to change our hearts from something that cannot answer these questions to somebody who can't not answer these questions. This is what it says in Ezekiel 36. It's got to be one of my favorite passages. 26 in verse, or verse 26 in chapter 36. God says to mankind, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. We don't put it in ourselves. Not a software upgrade. Can't go to school for this. Can't get a mentor for this. God gives us a new heart and a new spirit he installs in us. And he says, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. All that means is something that can't feel, that can't respond, that can't bleed is replaced for something that can. That can. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Listen, the same feeling heart that responds to God responds to those loved by God. That's what the heart of God does. With God's heart, we care about what he cares about. We hate what he hates. We love what he loves. We have compassion where he has compassion. We bleed where he bleeds. We lose sleep over things we ought to be losing sleep over. We hear groanings. We remember the promise of God. We see the condition. We know the condition. There's another book in your Bible called Nehemiah. It's a fascinating book. We've gone through it once as a church, and we've just finished it in our men's Bible study, just going through the book of Nehemiah. I'm fascinated most, probably one of the things I'm most fascinated by, I should say, is at the very beginning, right, there's this interesting moment where Nehemiah, who's in a far-off country, is getting news from some friends and probably family from how Jerusalem is doing, the city of God. So they come, they visit. He's like, oh, yeah, how are things in Jerusalem? They give him the report, and this is what it says. As soon, Nehemiah, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. If we just stopped right there and didn't even go into his prayer, this is important to note. Nehemiah heard old news. It wasn't cutting-edge stuff. It wasn't viral. It was about 100 years old at least. I think 140 years old. He already knew it was messed up. He already knew the walls were down. He already knew the people were apostate. He already knew all of this. But that stuff was previously background noise. Until it wasn't. Until it wasn't. And then Nehemiah becomes this unstoppable force. He's ruined for anything that is not getting that city back to where it needs to be. He became a sort of redeemer in the shape of Noah and Moses and Christ, fighting for the oppressed, fighting for the enslaved. Listen, we could teach techniques and strategies on how to be an effective missionary here. I'm happy to do that. We do have classes for that. But without the heart of God, the heart of Jesus, I mean, why? Without the heart of Jesus that refuses 
to let the groanings of the world just be drowned out by the American dream. We just sit in neutral. We have big heads with all of our knowledge, but we have small chests because we lack courage. Big heads and small chests. Listen, maybe you have the heart of God, and it does feel just incredibly distracted. Distracted, I get it. Got things to do. Places to be. And maybe your failure when examined by a passage like this is that people suffer around you and you simply don't care. You don't care. Let me ask you some questions. How often do you pray that God ruin you? That's a dangerous prayer. How often do you pray that God ruins you? How often would you ask God to interrupt your trajectory in this world? How often do you ask, beg? How often do you beg God for a heart that hears and remembers and sees and knows? How often? See, Knoxville is full of people making bricks. It's full of the enslaved, mostly spiritual, many economical. Every day they have to submit to a taskmaster, and the enemy of their soul is much more harsh than the enemy of these Hebrews in Egypt. Let me just submit to you, beg God to ruin you. Beg God to do it. Beg God to change your heart. Beg him for a life that hopes for something other than just the American dream. Maybe you're different. Maybe you don't have a heart for God. In fact, maybe you're a little bit of an activist. Maybe you're a searcher or a skeptic, but you probably always wonder why the church doesn't do more, why people don't do more, why our governments don't do more. There's something in you that wants to see change, but like Moses, you try to deliver without the help of God, right? Maybe, you, maybe you're doing that like he did as he kills somebody and just kicks sand over because that's the best you could come up with. Let me just say, you are the one enslaved in this moment. Without God, you are the one oppressed. You are the one he came to redeem. You are his mission. It's your cry he hears. It's your groaning he has heard and known. It is your predicament he has come to remedy. So I would submit something different, maybe a different point of repentance. Not repentance for being distracted into the American dream, but maybe a repentance for thinking you are your own God. Repentance from, from a life of living and serving yourself. To trust God with every fiber of your being. Maybe I would submit to, that you would ask God to ruin you. To take your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. And maybe submit that you would learn and ask God to enjoy him more and more. And listen, as we're on community together and as you guys meet in missional communities, I know probably most of us in here are in a community or in a DNA group of some kind. Ask each other whenever you get the chance, how is our part of the city broken? What is most broken about the people that are around us? What is furthest from glory? If our people had a, a voice, if our community had a voice, what would it ask for? Right? Because listen, there will be a day when Knoxville is going to return to a better version of itself. I don't know what that's going to look like if we'll have counties and cities and states. I have no idea what the new earth and the new heavens will look like. I have as good ideas as many as you do, right? But there will be a day when Knoxville doesn't have any sin in it, when this land has no more sin and destruction and chaos in it. 
mission will be accomplished. God's mission will be accomplished. Until then, we have now. Until then, we have now. To thankfully ask God to ruin our hearts that we would be sent. That we would hear and we would remember God's promises. We would see the need and the plight. And we would know the people that are bleeding around us. I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand with me. We'll take communion together before the team comes back out. And we can get, can we get somebody to go get a platter of these things? Because I'm pretty sure, unless you got one. Thank you, Randy. Appreciate you, buddy. Listen, if you're a Christian and you're here today, we really, even if you're not a part of Legacy, we'd invite you into this moment. If you're not a Christian, and if you need one of these, raise your hand and Randy will get you one. These little rip and sip cups. If you're not a Christian, don't worry about this. This is something that we do as a church. This is what we would call a family meal, I guess. A family moment. It's a very spiritual and a sacred time for us. It's not magical, right? But it is supernatural all at the same time. It's something that we do to celebrate, memorialize, and reflect upon what Jesus has done on the cross for us. To totally free us so that when we are poor missionaries, so when we do numb ourselves with distractions, God doesn't love us any less. you got to hear that. If you walked in here and you're like, oh my gosh, that's me. I'm a horrible missionary. I need a class or something. If that's you, you need to know on your worst day, your worst day, God does not love you any less. And on your best day as a Christian, he does not love you anymore. That's the power of what we're memorializing and celebrating with the body and the blood. Okay? So let's go through this and then I will pray for you. Father, we thank you for this moment where we can celebrate not just what you did for us on the cross, but for a different version of where we live now, where your mission is accomplished where we see sin rooted out. So, Lord, we thank you. And, Lord, as we take the the body, we take it recognizing that what you did on the cross, how you broke yourself, achieved a greater exodus for us. Much more than water stood upright, death itself had to retreat. And as we take this, we do so in thankfulness, and in worship and in remembrance of what you have provided for us. So go ahead and take the bread. And Lord, we thank you for the blood that was spilled on the cross. We're very thankful, Father, for how in the greater exodus, how you redeemed us. How in order for us to have a new heart, that could feel your heart had to be broken. In order for our heart to be able to respond, your heart had to be shattered as you saw your son, your best, your treasure laid out before a mocking humanity. Because, Lord, the exodus didn't just lead a a thankful, jovial, obedient, behaving people, but rebellious people. And we're thankful, Father, that on our worst day, Christ and his righteousness still answers for us. We're thankful that on our worst day, when we don't proclaim your good news, when we don't extend your love and your compassion and your mercy, Christ intercedes. His blood covers us. So when we take this, we celebrate the gospel. So go ahead and take the juice. So Lord, we thank you for 
how this passage confronts us. I mean, we examined this passage, but really it examined us. I mean, we can say we interpreted it, but you interpreted us just as much. You find us all lacking in how we hear and remember and see and know. You find us all short there. And Lord, I just pray that you would ruin us as a church. That you would ruin us. Ruin us for any other goals, overarching goals, other than seeing your kingdom come. Other than seeing you adored in this city. Help us, Father. Be good missionaries, to be good disciples. Not good in just how we behave, but good in how we are nurturing our affections for you, for how we remember your promises to us. Lord, we pray for your spirit to change our hearts ultimately. To change our hearts. To remind us of why we're here. To remind us, Father, of what you've done. And to lead us in how we go forward. So Lord, help us repent today. And then minister to our hearts. And Father, I even pray for those whose hearts are far from you. Lord, they have groaning. They have cries in their heart. And they've tried everything in the world to fill that void. They've looked at suitor after suitor after suitor that has promised that they would take care of the pain and the groaning. And yet they still make bricks. Still enslaved spiritually. Still a taskmaster in their life. God, that you would redeem them, that you would change their hearts, that you would call them son and daughter, draw them close, make them family. Lord, that today would be the day that you would do that, that today you would form a prayer in their heart. Maybe yesterday they weren't able to do that, and today they are. Just like Nehemiah, what used to be background noise is now breaking news. What used to just be common knowledge is now uncommon. It's new, it's vital, it's important. Pray that you would change hearts today, Lord. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we worship you in this moment. Amen.